Hi, and welcome back to the Apology Podcast. I'm Jesse Pearson, the founder and editor of Apology Magazine. This episode's guest is the professional skateboarder, fine art photographer, and fairly newly minted apparel designer, Jerry Sue. Uh, Jerry is one of my favorite skaters to watch, and that's what I initially knew him for before I met him. But around 2005 or 2007 or something, when was that? Anyway, our mutual friend, the photographer Tim Barber, introduced me to Jerry and his photos. And Jerry then became one of my favorite photographers, as well as a friend. Uh, If you look at his book from last year, which is called The Beautiful Flower is the World, I wrote the intro there, and so please excuse me if I repeat myself here. But what I love about Jerry's work and about the way he sees the world is how naturally it melds sadness um, and beauty and comedy. Most of his pictures are kind of heartbreaking, but also really funny. But also they make you, or they make me at least, feel a kind of empathy for human beings in general. A couple years ago, Jerry started putting out t-shirts, hats, and hoodies with the words sci-fi fantasy written across them. That brand of his exploded pretty quickly, and now it's evolved into a bunch of different stuff. Some of my favorites are the t-shirts with Ripley from the movie Alien and uh, the Devil's Tower National Monument, like from the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind. So he keeps everything within sci-fi fantasy, within the realm of sci-fi and fantasy, which I know is his favorite section in the bookstore, and uh, I assume in the video store as well. So let's hear more. Here's Jerry Sue on the Apology Podcast. Um, So what are you reading right now? Uh, I just started um, The Three-Body Problem. It's a sci-fi book or it's actually like a trilogy by this uh chinese author named si chin liu and uh my friends just recommended it to me and i just started i'm just only like 60 pages in but it's pretty cool because it starts it's basically from the point of view of like uh well it starts with the cultural revolution uh-huh. which is like um something i didn't really know that much about until I started reading this book, like I had had like a rough kind of like understanding of it. But when I started the book, I sort of dug into that and did some research on that. And it's so gnarly. Yeah. You know, like I I didn't understand the extent of it. Yeah. I mean, how many people? I mean, I think like it's it's around the number because the records are so they didn't really keep good records because obviously they don't. China's like kind of notorious for not keeping accurate records of all of their atrocities all their atrocities <laughs> yeah but um yeah the, it's estimated it goes from like 10 to 50 60 million Holy people shit. died as a result of it but there's no way to really know yeah so how does a sci-fi book start in the cultural evolution and then become something um, science fictiony um i think it's sort of just sort of framing it's sort of the author i think is just trying to illustrate the like kind of weird totalitarian nature of china yeah. uh, and it just starts with like um, basically scientists of that time and how they were like, basically intellectuals were like the greatest victims yeah, of the cultural revolution. Definitely. So I think that's just, you know, he just wanted to kind of like set yeah. that tone that this is what we're dealing with. Do you know like which kind of sci-fi is it? Is it, is it uh space travel? Is it like, it's going to be aliens, alien invasion type stuff. Nice. Yeah. Um, so I'm not really that far into it. So can you tell early in a book whether you're going to like it or not? Like, do you drop books when you, aren't vibing with them 
Uh, definitely. Um, I don't always know. It just kind of depends. Like I'll, uh, it just really depends on the book and also just my mood at the time, whether yeah. I'm feeling patient or not, but I've definitely just started stuff and just like kind of been like, ah, I'm not really into this. Yeah. <laughs> so since, since you do the, the sci-fi fantasy thing, I guess I was going to ask you about sci-fi books and you already brought it up. Like, is that a big genre for you? Um, yeah, in general. Yeah. I mean, it's like one of my favorite genres. I mean, I'm not really like insanely, I mean, I guess I haven't read that many, I guess. Uh, I don't know what a lot is, but I mean, when I was a kid, it was definitely the genre that I was gravitated towards most. Yeah. Like, like, like how old? Um, I would say like, like 13, 14, 15, that that area that's well, when i started reading stuff like like do androids dream of electric sheep uh-huh. and like things like that yeah did blade runner turn you on to philip k dick uh definitely because i like definitely like watching movies helped me find like books that i liked yeah yeah for sure what else do you remember reading at that time um a lot of uh i read i read a lot of um i was really into like aliens like the movie aliens yeah so and i, and I would read like the novelization of alien uh-huh. or aliens and stuff so and that sort of led because there's a whole genre of like extended universe stuff yeah where like you know it's just like they kind of uh take that world and then they like write books about it so i read a lot of those like this author steve perry i think his name is he wrote a lot of those i read a lot of his like back then when you were a kid? Mm-hmm. Wow. I never heard about the alien EU. I didn't know there was one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's basically, a lot of them is just kind of recycling, like, the ideas of of the, the alien mythos or whatever. Like, they'll just, like, one I read called Earth Hive was basically, it's exactly like the plot of Alien. Or not the plot, but they just basically take, like, a colonial marine and uh-huh. then, like, a young girl, and then they have to, like, deal with, like, aliens taking over or whatever. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Um, I remember when Aliens, Aliens, plural, came out, I was too young to get into it, so I bought a ticket to this John Lennon documentary that was out then and then snuck into it <laughs> and just awesome. sat through, like, two screenings. Um, have you gotten into the Star Wars EU at all? Yeah, I I read those, too. Uh, a, a little, maybe, like, later when I was a teenager, but I, like, I, I read, like, the Han Solo trilogy, and then there was another one, um, oh, what is it called? I forget. But it's basically, like like post return of the Jedi post stuff. Jedi. Yeah. <laughs> I just started my first delving into the EU like two months ago. It was kind of cause of the Mandalorian, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so I started reading the rebel commando series. Oh yeah, yeah. Have you heard about that? Yeah. <laughs> it's just a bunch of Mandalorians like that are basically Marines. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Those are, I mean, they're cool. They're so awesome. Yeah. I thought they were going to be kind of cheesy. Um, like, like, the new Star Wars movies kind of like just overly plotted, like romantic bullshit. Mm-hmm. But these Rebel Commando books are just like Marine murder books. Yeah. You know, they're like Jack Reacher books or something. Yeah. No, they're awesome because they kind of like, you know, like, cause, you know, they just have to follow like kind of a primer. Yeah. And they don't have to, they don't have to be like Star Wars. They, right. They right. can just take all the characters and the ideas and the, the races and all that stuff. And they can just kind of like do what they want with it. Yeah. 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 What about as you got older into high school? Like, did you stick with sci-fi all the way through? No, I cut, well, I vote sort of, but then I kind of like, I sort of delved into like, because of the friends I met, I started reading other stuff. Like I remember my friend gave me this Alan Watts book. Oh yeah. uh, The wisdom of insecurity. And that was like kind of a big deal for me. Um, Being like 16 and like 
reading stuff like that. It was just like kind of mind blowing at that time. Yeah. Because you know you you're so like you're so like lost. I mean, still lost, but reading that kind of stuff helped sort of calm me down a little bit about did. about the world or yeah. whatever my world. Was your family religious at all? Uh, zero. No, they're not. They were never religious. Um, I actually asked my mom about it one time when I was a kid. I was like, why? Because like, you know, my, my friends, they were, you know, religious, like Christian or whatever. And I'd be like, how come we aren't a religion? And I remember her saying so bluntly, like, oh, it's a waste of time. Nice. Like, like, no, no follow up. I was just like, okay, done. Yeah. That's cool. That's good. That's good parenting. Yeah. I respected that. I was just like, oh, that's nice. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I mean, they were, my mom especially, but they were superstitious. They're not religious. Like, what's a superstition they believed in? Um, just like things like bad omens, ghosts. It's like pretty typical, like Chinese sort yeah. of things. Like, I remember I got really hurt one time skateboarding, and I had to go to the hospital. And my, I remember my mom was came to the hospital, and she's like, "I had a bad feeling something was going to happen today. I, I saw this raven." Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I just laughed. It was that's amazing. That's very like ancient Roman to like use like birds as auguries. Yeah, totally. Like yeah. I just saw this really black, big black bird today, and I just knew something was going to happen. Sun was going to get hurt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I really like the Chinese like kind of like numerological superstitions. Like certain numbers are bad luck, and others. Oh, are, totally. Yeah. yeah, that's so weird. My dad was less that way. He, my dad is so he's like the most pragmatic man I've yeah. ever known. Does he read? For pleasure? Um, I mean, growing up, I never really saw him reading too much. I feel like he probably read a lot of, like, financial books because he's, he's like, you know, real... He was an engineer, so uh-huh. he was real numbers-oriented. Yeah. And I don't think he really read that much for pleasure. What about your mom? My mom read more... She read a lot of... Uh, I didn't know what they were because they were all in Chinese. Uh-huh. Um, but... I think they were mostly just about like family dramas, the type like you know like Oprah book club type, right? You know, books, but um, Chinese, but in Chinese, yeah. yeah I yeah, never yeah. knew what they were, yeah. But she would tell me about them sometimes, like like about the stories and uh-huh. um, what they were or whatever. That's but. cool. So Alan Watts, um, do you remember much what you got out of that? Like when you first kind of got into him? Um, well, he was a British theologian. And yeah. he was, I think he was even like a priest at one time, but basically he's famous for like kind of interpreting Eastern philosophy and mixing it with like Western philosophy and religion or whatever. And yeah. sort of like kind of breaking it down and sort of introducing like that genre to, or not genre, but that like philosophy to people. Yeah. And I liked it just because it really simplified stuff that I was, uh, just like nervous about all the time. It, it kind of teaches you how to like look at a situation more simply instead of just like freaking out about it. Yeah. That's kind of what I got out of it. Well, like social anxiety or stressing like the future or like... Yeah, yeah. It's it's really like kind of just that has that like Buddhist kind of like, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, you're going to suffer no matter what. And yeah, life is suffering. Yeah, life sucks. And you <laughs> should just like kind of find a way to deal with it. And here are some, you know... Here's some ideas about yeah. that. I've only ever read This Is It by him. But mm. I've thought about reading more. It was a yeah. long time ago. Yeah, Wisdom of Insecurity is good. It's very general. Insecurity is a good topic for teenagers, too. Yeah, I mean, I felt, I mean, I still do, but I just, yeah, I felt like an endless amount of insecurity as a kid. So reading that helped. What were you insecure about? I was so, like, weirdly existential, even from, like, a, a time, like, just being, like, a little kid, like, who mm-hmm. was I going to be? What am I going to do? Right. I don't know. Like, I think, like, being the, 
the child of immigrants makes you really, it, it forces you to think about identity all the time. Oh, yeah. So growing up being like, because I wanted to be American and my, right. my family wanted me to be still maintain like being, you know, Taiwanese or Chinese or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So there was always this like weird identity crisis I was going through and a lot of pressure. Yeah. I mean, you were being pulled in two directions probably. Yeah. Did you get shit from kids with like racist bullshit when you were little? Sure. Yeah. yeah. Like I remember, yeah, in first grade, I remember a, such a distinct memory of being taunted by the other kids, like doing the eyes thing. Uh-huh. Real and original. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very uncreative first yeah, grade. Yeah, uncreative first grade bullies. <laughs> but uh but not that much because I mean I grew up in a community that was it's like Northern California. There was yeah. like a lot of other Asian kids. It was right. pretty multicultural, so yeah. not that much. I didn't grow up in like I don't know, like North Carolina or something where it's like so few. Yeah. Or where I grew up in New Jersey. uh, Yeah. It wasn't great for kids who weren't white sometimes. Yeah. But I was always trying to like fight that, you know, I was always trying to like be something else. How did you do, like, how did you do that? Like, what were your ways of wanting to be American? Like, um, like, well, it's really, it really starts simply like refusing to eat the food, Uh only speaking English at home. Um, just sort of, getting into stuff that was, uh, you know, weird to them. Like, I yeah. mean, like I always wanted to like draw and, um, and like the music I was getting into mm-hmm. as a young, as a young kid, like basically just er- anything I could, the way I dressed, yeah. you know, everything had to be my way. And, right. And it was, you know, this constant, constant friction. That's a lot of teenagers, but this added like cultural tension. It probably made it even more complicated. Yeah, totally. Like it, I mean, it was just the extra level of having parents from another country is yeah. it's tough. It yeah. makes it a lot harder because even like the friends I had was, was a problem, you know, like all my, fr- I didn't really have that many Asian friends. It was, it was like white, black, Mexican, like, a, yeah. you know, and then eventually like even like the girls I dated, it was just like everything became such a contentious issue. Your parents actually would bring up with you that you didn't have Asian friends. Um, We're really getting far away from books right now, but I'm digging it. <laughs> well, <if you> don't. <laughs> well, I mean, not directly, but, or sometimes directly. Yeah. Like they would, you know, I think when you come to a country, like there's this level of tribalism that, you know, it's, it comes from wanting to protect your kid. Yeah. And so, and also like having, and like having crazy stereotypes about other types of people. Yeah. It's just, you know, it's just how all people who come to a new country are, you want to find, um, you know, people like you and kind of stick with them. Yeah. There's a safety in that. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and plus like, you know, when I started skateboarding, it was like, it, I was also rebelling a lot. So there was a lot, a lot of crossover with getting in trouble and like mm-hmm. skateboarding and my friends sort of fell into that, you know, Venn diagram yeah. like, to them. It was just like, Oh, this is because you're skating and all these like right. people that you're hanging out with. This is why, uh, you're getting in trouble. Was that to some degree true? Um, yeah, totally. Yeah. But not, but from my perspective, it, it, it wasn't because of like who they were. It was just because of who I was. Right. Yeah. How about now as an adult? Like, are you like, do you have regrets over like staying away from Chinese identity stuff so much? Are you like integrated into your life in different ways now? Or are you still kind of just the path you were on? I guess regret isn't really... I would say I wish I learned how to read and write. Mm -hmm. That was, that's something that I kind of wish, I mean, obviously I still could, but when I was growing, 
when I was growing up in our community, there was this thing called Chinese school and it happened every Saturday and it was run by like people of the community of the Chinese community or whatever, or the Taiwanese community. And like, they would just like use a middle school and they would like teach the kid. It was basically like, you know, members of the community teaching the kids right. their culture or whatever. Right. And I somehow just like, like weaseled my way out of it. And, <laughs> and I went a few times and I was, and I was just so like rebellious about yeah, it. They, yeah. they just kind of gave up on it. But yeah. that's something that I wish I, um, sort of embrace the language, the language. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's funny. Cause you were just telling me when you got here that you just went out to, uh, the San Gabriel Valley, which if you don't know, if you're not from here, is a very Asian area of the Los Angeles zone. And you bought a bunch of books in Chinese, right? What happened there? Yeah. So I went to this, uh, used bookstore out there and just like this really, really old Chinese guy runs it. And I was, uh, basically just buying a bunch of books just cause I like to collect books and, and the artwork on them is, you know, so cool or whatever, but I was trying to buy these books and, uh, I brought them all up to the counter and he was just like, what are you, what are you doing? Like, you can't just buy one of these because they come in sets, right. you know, like volume one, two, and three. Yeah. And I was just trying to buy like the cover of number or volume two or whatever. And he was like, <laughs> right. you gotta like buy the whole thing. And, um, and he could barely speak English. So it was just like this funny, like, I was just like, oh, I finally understood what he meant. So <laughs> and I just bought the sets. He just bought they, them all. Because they were cheap. Yeah. You mentioned to me a few days ago that you started reading some stuff way too early, like too early to understand it. Mm -hmm. What were you talking about? Like, what kind of stuff? Uh, well, uh, the, what I was, the, the book I was talking about when I was talking to you earlier was, um, like interpretation of dreams by Sigmund Freud, uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> which is such a hilarious book for like, like an 11 or 12 year old person to pick up and be like, I'm going to try to do this. But, uh, I was probably just having some weird dreams at the time. And I just like, was like, mom, can you buy me this book? And I, and I tried to get into it, but it was just way beyond my capability. Yeah. It's pretty dense I mean, for a 10 year old. Yeah. <laughs> 11, whatever. Yeah. What did, do you remember what your mom thought of you wanting a Freud book? Um, or did she even have a context? For I don't it? think she really had a context or, or at all. Yeah. Um, she just was like, okay, yeah, whatever. Have you ever gone back to that book? I ne I've never gone back, but I probably should because uh, I'm interested in my dreams. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right. Was there much reading for you on skate tours? Like, do you take a book in the van like bands tend to do sometimes, or is that hard to do in that context? No, I mean, it's, it's just like any traveling person. I mean, I feel like we, yeah, like airplanes, there's such a huge amount of time you spend in the car that like, yeah, I always yeah. brought books. Um, sometimes the tour, it depends on the tour, but like, sometimes I would just bring a book and not read it because so much other shit would be going on. But, yeah. um, yeah, I, you know, do you have any like memories that stand out of books you read on, on tours early on? Let's see. I remember brought interview with the vampire. Uh, that was nice. Really, that was really good. Yeah. That was awesome. Yeah. Uh, I'd already seen the movie, but I wanted to read the book and like, the book is so badass. It's I, really was, good. That was one of those. Yeah, that was a book that I really just loved the way she wrote. And it made me yeah. just kind of like, you know, turn just page after page. Totally. Yeah. I have a really vivid memory of reading that book for the first time, too, on a camping trip with my parents. 
Um, yeah, she writes like kind of like ornately, but it, not so much that a like tween can't grasp it. Yeah, yeah. You know, did you read the whole series? Uh, I read uh, Interview with the Vampire and then The Vampire Lestat, uh-huh. but then I just stopped after that. How's the movie? I never saw it. Interview with the Vampire. Yeah. I mean, it's it's awesome. I think people really hate on it, but I really I really liked it. Um, uh, it's actually super funny. Like, like on purpose. I think so. Like Tom Cruise is, it's like one of his best comedic performances. I is think. he Louis or Lestat? He's Lestat. Oh my God. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> it's, he, he's hilarious in that movie. I got to see that. I've always slept on that. He's good. Yeah. <laughs> Were many of your like peers in that world reading too? It's like being a pro skater who reads a rare thing. Um, I mean, kinda. Yeah. I mean, it's not like no one reads, but like, I mean, skaters in general, I think, you know, they're not very into books i would just say in general yeah or reading i mean skaters are more into just like listening to music and stuff yeah, you know, yeah watching yeah. videos um um but there's some really booky skaters out there tell me a couple like i know ed reads a lot of books at templeton. templeton yeah and i mean there's skaters like like ocean howell who you know he's he was a pro skater in the early mid 90s and he's like a he's a professor now like he oh of what of uh, I'm going to make a mistake here, but I know he's written papers about like architecture and stuff. Wow. And I mean, I mean, he's, he's written, he's written papers on like the relationship between skating and architecture, like wow. really, really cool, like dense. That's stuff. cool. I should look into that. Yeah. I feel like Mark Johnson reads a lot. Oh yeah. He reads a ton. Actually. Um, I remember going to his house when I was like 15 or 16 and he just had walls of books he loves but he actually got me into things like bukowski oh yeah he loves that nice that type of stuff he was kind of a mentor to you right yeah yeah for sure for sure so he got you reading bukowski that's a good mentor move yeah (laughs) yeah yeah he he got me into bukowski and then i remember he was reading post office so i went and bought post office yeah 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 i visited bukowski's grave a few months ago oh really yeah i just happened to be there i was looking at D. Boone's grave from the Minutemen. And then someone told me Bukowski was there too. So I looked at both of them. What about like writers on skating? Who, who, who in that world writes really well, if anyone? Earl. Earl? Earl uh, Parker. Earl Parker. I've never really read Earl Parker's. It's pretty out there shit. Yeah, yeah. I have actually follow his Instagram. It's very out there. And you know who has like a really, really good understanding is Ted Barrow. Uh-huh, like yeah. I really like his sort of um, like his his opinions about skating. They're really yeah, good. they're really good. Give him a, like a shout out. Like, what's his Instagram called again, Ted? Well, he has one that's just his personal one, which is just Ted Barrow, and then he has another one called Feedback TS. Right. And Feedback TS is sort of a sort of satirical persona of his, where he critiques skate little skate clips that yeah, kids yeah, send yeah. him. So kids will send him like a really bad clip. Not they don't think it's bad. They think right. it's good, yeah. but he'll. He'll review them uh, on his inst- on that Instagram and give them kind of like tips on how to be cool, quote unquote cool or whatever. <laughs> and I think a lot of people don't understand that it's like just satire. And yeah. They take them really, really seriously. Yeah. And they just start. Yeah. <laughs> satire goes over people's heads a lot, especially if it's something they feel like reverential about you know totally, like yeah. kids do about skating kids call them like old and out of touch if they uh-huh. if, if they don't get a positive review and then older guys will just be like you're pathetic why are you right. why are you picking on these kids right. but um but he's an art historian too right yeah he yeah. is like 
he has like a master's degree, yeah. you know, like he's, yeah. he's a very, very smart person. And then going back just for a second, so people know what we said, what we were talking about. Earl Parker was this guy who wrote mostly for Big Brother, right? Yeah. Actually, yeah. Big Brother magazine. And he was, he's just kind of a whack job. You know what I mean? Really interesting guy, really smart, but probably mentally... Super out there. Yeah, yeah. But he wrote these really strange stream of consciousness kind of things. Yeah. That, like you wondered why they were even in a magazine. Yeah. But they were great. Uh-huh. Yeah. Big Brother actually had really good writers. Yeah. Naratko. Naratko. Carney. Carney. Those guys were. Yeah. Big Brother. Had those a whole guys were actually world. kind of. Those are actually some skateboarders with great writing talent. Yeah. That I discovered when I was young. Do you think that magazine influenced you? Yeah, totally. It was just like such a rad, subversive sort of. I don't know. It sort of encapsulated like it was. It was definitely like kind of making fun of how serious skating was, yeah, and how serious people took it, like the punk mentality of skating, like yeah. the the whole like it, which kind of morphs into this weird like jock mentality, um, and they kind of like just sort of flipped it and made fun of it, and in a very clever way, yeah, yeah, great magazine. What are some of your favorite photography books? Well, Raised by Wolves is a classic, and Jim, super what's his in, name? Uh, Jim Goldberg. Jim Goldberg, right? Yeah, I mean all his stuff. Yeah, tell know. tell everybody what Raised by Wolves is like what about. Uh, Raised by Wolves is about, he was hanging out in Hollywood in the late eighties, and he met a bunch of homeless kids on Hollywood Boulevard and just started hanging out with them, and he just basically kind of like documents their lives. Uh, like total immersion into their lives. And there's like all these cool characters in it. They're yeah. just like reoccurring in the book yeah. and uh, great stuff. Yeah. Super awesome. Really cool. Another photo book I really like is uh, Dirty Windows by Mary Alpern. I don't know and this. Dirty Windows is about, she lived in this apartment and across the street, she could look down into this bathroom of a club and, in this bathroom, like stockbroker dudes, like Wall Street dudes, would like do drugs oh, and, wow. and like you know hook up with hookers. Oh wow! And it is—it's just like telephoto, really tight of this window, super black and white, grainy. But you know, you just see like like cocks and drugs and money Whoa. being exchanged. Uh, it's a super awesome. This book. Sounds great. In the eighties in New York, is uh, it, it? I don't know when it was made. Actually, I feel like early nineties. Okay, I think like ninety one ish is when this book was made. Sounds incredible. Super good. Book. How'd you find it? It was just randomly in a. I feel like in like a pretty mainstream bookstore, like a Barnes and Noble of nice. all places. Yeah, I mean back then, like. A place like that would carry pretty crazy shit. They would. There was nowhere else to get it <laughs> yeah. at some points. Yeah. Yeah. What was the first photo book you remember getting that like you knew you were going to keep forever? Um, well, okay. So I remember again at Barnes & Noble, I found this book called Emotions and Relations. And it was really just like a compilation book with like David Armstrong, Bruce mm-hmm. Davidson, and Nan Golden. Yeah. And I remember looking at their work and being like, whoa, yeah. this is awesome. And yeah. I kind of want to do this yeah i mean it was really the books that i found in the beginning were all just sort of whatever they had at barnes and noble that looked kind of gritty and weird and and of course like getting into photography early as like a teenager and stuff like i was definitely like where can i find nudity totally basically like and then but then that kind of leads you to like very very beautiful art and totally so 
anything I could get my hands on, basically. Yeah. I remember when I was a kid, TV Guide would come in the mail and I'd look in the listings and find movies that had nudity and be like, okay, I'm going to check that out. And that led to like watching stuff like uh, like Carnal Knowledge by Mike Nichols, like <laughs> yeah. really good shit. I was like, well, I don't know what this is, but I like it, you know? Yeah, totally. Yeah. I remember, I remember seeing The Terminator when I was a kid on TV and just being, first of all, watching The Terminator for the first time is insane. It's like a religious experience. Yeah, you're just like, what the fuck? Yeah. But then when I, like a couple years later, I, I got, there was a local video store and I remember renting it. And watching it and just being like, whoa, there was a lot of stuff edited out. Like Sarah, <laughs> like Sarah Connor having sex. She's like yeah. topless and yeah. stuff. And you're just like, what? And yeah. it's kind of like my, I was like, whoa, this is crazy. That's and that's, that basically began my VHS rental life. <laughs> I was just like <laughs> taking all the movies I had seen on that were totally edited for TV. You were like your own personal Mr. Skin. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it was awesome. Also, I don't know how I got a card to rent movies when I was like 11. Yeah. I, was, I don't know how that That's happened. Cool. When did you know that you were a photographer? I don't really know. I guess like basically when I first got sponsored, I was like 15, 16. And I remember hanging around a lot of skate photographers because you know they're always like hey we need to go shoot this thing they would and then just being so like fascinated by what they did and buying starting to buy cameras starting and then taking a photo class and then learning about photography as an art i think i just it just sort of happened around then like late like 17 18 i guess yeah um just because it's like anything that you become like super obsessed with after like after a minute you're just like whoa this is all i think about yeah so i guess that's when it happened. Do you remember what your first photos or like your first era of photography was like? Yeah, it was just, it was just uh, like borrowing my mom's, like borrowing like the family camera and um, just shooting my friends skating and then shooting them hanging out and stuff. That was the very beginning of it because, you know, skaters are so obsessed with documentation. So it was so natural because we were already filming each other with like video cameras. Yeah, yeah, all the time. Yeah, all the time. So that's what it was at first. Um, and actually I'll, I remember seeing, I was in a photographer, Gabe Morford's car, he's a skateboard photographer and he had a zine that Patrick O'Dell made Uh as his final project in art school. And I remember seeing that and that made a huge impact on me. Yeah. I was like, and and it's cool because we're like really good friends now. You didn't know him then though. I didn't know him. Oh wow. That's cool. And I saw his, his stuff and it was all just, you know, just point shoot. T4 type stuff of like his girlfriend and traveling around yeah. and, and his friends and stuff. And I remember I, that zine. I loved it. Yeah. I, I, he was my intern at Index around that. No yeah. At Index Magazine. That's yeah. crazy. Just, uh, well, let's, let's tell the moms and dads who don't know who Patrick O'Dell is. You want to, you want to handle this? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Patrick O'Dell is, well, he's, he's a photographer and, um, he's also a documentarian. He made, Epically later, this sort of documentary series about skateboarders. Yeah. Very, very good stuff. And yeah, he's just, you know, just a great artist. Yeah. Do you think looking at photographs is a kind of reading? Um, yeah, I mean, I would say that. It's it's weird. People just like reading, people look at well, maybe not like reading, I don't know, but everyone looks at photographs differently and they expect something different from from mm-hmm. photographs. It's weird. Um, I read this Errol Morris book about photography one time called Believing is Seeing. Hmm. And he basically wanted to like investigate because, you know, everyone's like, 
like looking for the truth in photography right. or whatever. Like he was the just decisive like, moment thing. Yeah. And yeah. he was just like, well, what's up with that? Like, let's really look into this. And yeah. he, he sort of dissected, like, for example, there's a whole chapter on, well, he's trying to talk about like whether like posing a photograph and is, is that right or wrong? And who really, or, and does it even really matter? Oh, wow. huh. Stuff like that. And, he used the the he used this guy uh this photograph these two photographs by this guy named George Roger Fenton who was he's considered the first war photographer uh-huh. and he was sent to Crimea like in the mid 1800s like the Crimean war yeah. to like to photograph the war and he took a photo of this um dirt road and this is the mid 1800s so yeah and he's and in this photograph, there are all these cannonballs in the road, and it, it's supposed to illustrate like the the intensity of war, like the whatever. sheer volume. Yeah, of, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's yeah. like hundreds of these cannonballs in the road, right. and it's like the the photo is called "In the Valley of the Shadow of Death," and it's like sort of this like where it's supposed to show like you know both sides and like whatever. Anyway, another frame was discovered after that where there are no cannonballs in the road. Oh shit! And so it's. It's partly so famous, not only for being one of the first war photographs of all time, but a posed one. Wow. And so he's, and he, uh, he basically like goes into like, well, who cares? You know, that's like, what Errol Morris's yeah, standpoint that's his was. position yeah. because, you know, he argues that like, um, like whether the cannonballs are in there or not, like there's, there's, there's a message that's trying to be, yeah, you know, and, he also argues that photographing something is taking it out of context every single time you do it. Yeah. You know, there could be something out of the frame. There could be something happening before it or right after it. Yep. It's, it's just this one out of context moment. Yeah. And so, you know, you sort of. Yeah. Them. I mean, even if you're a newspaper photographer, you're making choices. Totally. You know, I think every photo is about a subjective truth, probably. Yeah, and he also says that every single photograph is posed because, like, for example, if you're trying to take a photo of something and you have to, like, maybe wait for someone to get out of the way. Yeah. Like, that's, in a in a way... Yeah, it's planning, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know Matthew Brady, I guess, the Civil War photographer? Mm-hmm. He got a lot of... I think there was a lot of shit later on for him about posing stuff, like pulling a dead soldier up into a rock so it yeah. looked a little more poetic and stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's... I mean, arguments on both sides are, are you know... yeah. I'm all for posing, I think. He actually, the next chapter of that book is about Abu Ghraib. And oh, the, wow. The Abu Ghraib photos. Yeah. And what an impact that made. And that the photo of uh, that that girl, like, with her thumbs up with the uh-huh. dead body. Like Lindy that. England. And that was completely, it's, I mean, like, you have to look at the entire series of photos that they were taking. Yeah. And you have to kind of, like, I mean, you just, the photo looks so bad, you know, yeah. thumbs up with a dead body, with a dead, like, combatant's it's body. Insanely it's insanely brutal. It's, like, so yeah. brutal. And, but the whole series, there's, like, 30 photos where they were really, they were just documenting, like, you know, they were taking basically, like, autopsy photos because, and it's really ironic because she was actually trying to do the opposite of what happened to her. She was trying, because that man died under very suspicious circumstances, he was like beaten to death uh-huh. and no one had, no one has ever suffered the consequences of his murder. Yeah. And what she was trying to do was like show that this man had been beaten to death because the story is he died of a heart attack, okay. but she was, her and this other person were taking photographs of his injuries, of his injuries and stuff. And then that photo happened. And she, according to 
her, uh, she's just she always just does a thumbs up when a photo is taken of her. And okay. she, and, and <laughs> Whether you're at Disney World or in front of a dead prisoner. Well, she, yeah, it's just like a weird... You do both spontaneous and, and, and planned and posed photography. Is there one you prefer or, you know, what leads you to make a certain subject one or the other? I would say that uh, the, more, the more spontaneous, like, street stuff that... I mean, it's based on mood, basically uh-huh. and also the availability of an idea so like the stuff where i'm just walking around i can do that any you know i, I just like i'm gonna go i'm gonna go somewhere today and walk around mm-hmm. and look around and stuff and then so that's kind of just like a more everyday not every day but that's a more like practice all yeah, the time right but then the more the stuff that i kind of set up that comes from like getting an idea and just you know following through with it and there's and Sometimes I just don't feel like doing that. Setting you know? stuff up. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes yeah. It's just, it just depends on, you know, how I feel when I get up. It's kind of like writing when you're setting up a photo. I mean, you're telling a story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the setup stuff's kind of cool because it's more, it's just, it's stuff that I'm never going to be able to see. Yeah. It, or, it, or it expresses an idea that I probably will never see. So it's nice to just kind of get that out of you, you know? Yeah. What's an example? Like... Like I, I took a photo recently of, um, like a person's hand and a knife is falling through, yeah. uh, two of the fingers. And, um, I had that idea for years and mm. I just really, really, really wanted to make it happen. And it came out, I thought it came out great. A lot, a lot of my ideas I do and I'm just like, oh, yeah. I hate this. Yeah. This sucks. <laughs> but that one came out kind of cool. Yeah, I like it. You showed it to me. Yeah, I just... Um, um, didn't you once have your wife, Kat, like wear fake casts or something for photos mm-hmm. or fake leg break? What was it? Casts. Yeah. I what, just, what, did, what led you to that? Um, I think like a weird... That was sort of like a weird... I guess sexual fantasy. Like, like a fetish thing. A fetish thing, but not something that I ever, like, I don't, like, look up, like, porn of, like, injured girls or anything. I just think it, like, looks aesthetically cool. And also it comes from, like, I've always loved, like, tomboy girls. Uh-huh. So, like, like girls, girls who, like, got hurt uh-huh. always was cool. They were cool. It was, they were cool because they, like, they would like skateboard or like just be outside and just, they would just be, you know, like yeah. they like weren't like girly girls. Yeah, yeah, and I yeah. think that has something to do with, uh, with that. Yeah. I thought it was interesting to look at those photos and, and think about the fact that you staged them in the context of you having been injured so much in your life and having had to wear that kind of stuff, you know, after you're hurt, like you have a relationship to casts that other people don't have. Yeah. I have a, I have a relationship to injury. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I document a lot of that stuff. Like I have a, a lot of photos of, you know, my various injuries and like surgeries, post-surgery yeah. type stuff. And, um, I like to mix that in to everything. It's, um, I don't know. It's just such a big part of my life, like withstanding injury and pain. Yeah. So, and it, and it makes for, I think it makes for good work. Was there a point when you were first starting to skate where you like had your first couple serious slams or injuries and you were like, you had to decide this is worth it or it's not worth it? Like, do you remember going, this shit really hurts. Do I really want to do this? No, I never, ever thought about it like that. Wow. Um, A lot of people were like, what? But I mean, people who stick with skating, like 
they can understand that uh, it didn't matter how hurt I got, really. Especially when you're a kid. Yeah. You're just so, I don't give a fuck. I'm going to do this. Right. Um, and it just means everything to me. Yeah. I never considered stopping. And, and I had really fucking awful injuries when I was a kid, too. What was your first really horrible injury? <laughs> this is probably the worst injury I've ever had. But one time, uh, the board, it's called getting, like, popsicled. Where the oh. board, like, you just... The, you just land in a way where the board is basically like um, sticking. You're basically being impaled, uh-huh. and like in the crotch. Yeah, in the crotch, and it, and it and it hit this one spot where it tore my urethra, <laughs> <laughs> and it uh, it was fucking horrible. And yeah, like I immediately I knew something had happened because that happens all the time, but it just, you know, it just kind of hits weird fleshy parts of you. But this one hit this like bullseye spot. And I remember opening my pants and there was like one little drop of blood came out of my dick. And I was like, Oh God, fuck. And I was with two friends and I immediately, and I had to walk home with them. And I got in the shower for some reason. It was just sort of like my natural sort of instinct. I'm going to get in the shower and, wash this away uh-huh. i guess but then i but then like blood just started gushing out of me and i started screaming Jesus. and it was uh and then and then my friends called 911 and all of a sudden my house was filled with EMTs and firefighters wow and that's when my mom got home she got home from work and the house was filled with EMTs and firefighters and she was devastated this is actually the day she saw the raven this is the raven thing oh my god really yeah. wow <laughs> and so it was it was it was real it, yeah <laughs> and uh um yeah and then we went to the hospital i had to get like surgery on your well it wasn't it wasn't like surgery really it was basically they had they anesthetized me and uh-huh. then they stuck a catheter in me uh-huh and i had to wear that catheter for about i think like 12 days jesus man and um yeah that was that was bad, especially like 14, you yeah. know, like that's so young to experience so much like penis. Dick trauma. Yeah, dick trauma. And then, but when it was healed, you were, you got back out there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hadn't even, oh yeah, on my skateboard. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh no, that's how you thought I meant fucking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that too. Um, yeah. I mean, just, it, there was no question. I just, I couldn't wait to skate. I guess it's the power of skating. There was a like a few years ago, or maybe like ten years ago at this point. I stayed at your house once when you when I still lived in New York, but you were out of town in L.A. and I crashed there. Remember that? Mm-hmm. And uh, I started reading a book you had on your bed. It was a Phil- Philip Roth novel. Mm. I think the Dying Animal. Oh yeah, and it's a good book. I read it like during that little trip when I was out here. But it was like it felt like such a weird, random choice. Like, just this one Philip Roth book, like, on your bed. Like, do you remember that at all? Like, why did you get that? Um, I don't really remember why. I remember reading it. I remember the book. Um, I remember liking it. But I don't know. I think I I think I think was just going through a phase, like, maybe I was, like, reading Yates, you know? Richard Yates? Like, yeah, like, uh-huh. uh, He's my like, favorite. like, Easter Parade. I think I read just before that. Did I give you that? No. I proselytized that book so hard. <laughs> it's a yeah, great one, right? I love that book. It's probably the saddest book ever written. It's 
so devastating. Yeah. Um, yeah, all that. Oh man, all that weird 1950s Americana tragedy stuff yeah. is crazy. It's bad. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know. I read The Human Stain too right after it. I haven't read that one. Um, Good. It's all right. Yeah. Dying Animals kind of. I think I liked more. It was about like a horny professor, right? Or yeah, it was basically about this like professor who just like never settles down, just hooks up with his students. Right. And he sort of goes through this like crisis because he just like he fall, falls in love with one of his students. But he kind of like just realizes he's kind of wasted his life just hooking up with mm-hmm. like random girls. So and, he's the titular dying animal. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Right. Totally. That's kind of terrifying <laughs> to be in that position. So you were doing kind of a thing, like you were reading some of like the great, like sort of like mid-century, like white dudes who wrote about sad stuff. Yeah. Like Cheever, John Cheever and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm, it reminded me of like, also also when I was a kid, I remember reading like J.D. Salinger stuff and it, yeah. um, sort of the same yeah. thing to me. You and I have both uh, have a history of depression like clinical depression, you have, has, have any books ever helped you with mental health? Not directly. It's really just, I don't think so. No. I yeah. mean, I, but I've never really tried intentionally. Yeah. Um, I mean the act of reading and the act of enjoying reading helps. Yeah. But other than that, I would just say no. Yeah. I think like, I think just like seeing a therapist and trying to improve your behavior is the only way I've really that's about sucks (laughs) yeah me too i mean yeah i now now that i finally have a therapist who i really work with well i've never had an experience like like successful therapy it's pretty great yeah i mean if i have i can't think of it right now i know what you mean though i mean i think about like reading anything being kind of like a soothing thing or something i think i've used it as an escape too like i'll just get the same fucking book out Mm -hmm. and read it in bed in the middle of the day you know well not anymore because i feel like i'm better but (laughs) i used to do that yeah i would reread books because it was it it made me feel better definitely like what like, like, do I enjoy Dream of Electric Sheep? I've read that a couple times, maybe three times. Yeah. And it's just like a nice, it brings me back to a, a good, I just have a good feeling from it. Yeah. We talked about sci-fi books, but what about fantasy? Well, a big one would be Dune. Uh-huh. I read Dune when I was, a, when I was young, around the same time. Oh, the same time as like, do I enjoy Dream of Electric Sheep? Yeah. Like I read Dune and Dune was awesome. Yeah. So dense. Mm-hmm. And like, I think it might've been the first book that I ever read that w- that dealt with like serious world building. Yeah. You know, and cause I think Frank Herbert was, he was like a naturalist too. Like he spent a lot of time learning about like ecology and oh, how, wow. like plants. And wow. so like the book is filled with, you know, th- like the, like the, the ecology of like Arrakis and stuff. And yeah. it's like, very detailed. Yeah. And yeah, that was really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's all about. I mean, Arrakis is the desert planet, right? Yeah, it's the desert planet where the where the spice melange is from. Exactly, <laughs> and it's like the most important commodity in the universe. And the sandworms live yeah. there. Did you read any more in the Dune series? No, I just read the first one. Me too. I've tried the second one like a number of times, and I just can't get into it. I think it. I tried. Yeah, I tried to read Children of Dune, and I was just like, ah, I'm not into this. And yeah. I had already just I just finished the first one, and I was like, I'm good. What about the Lord of the Rings? Dude, I never fucked with Lord of the Rings. Get in there. I mean, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I advise it. 
you told me, um, I forget when, but recently, like in the last year, about a Japanese female art critic you really liked, right? Remember this? It was oh. when I was writing the intro for the book, for oh. your book. Oh, no, it's, she is, well, I think she's half Japanese, and but she's German. Oh, right. she's an artist herself. Oh. Uh, her name is Hito Styral. Right. And, yeah, she she deals, she, a lot of her work deals with, like, um, imagery and technology. Yeah. So it kind of like, that's why around the time of the book, um, I was, I found her and was so interested. Cause you were, the book is all Blackberry photos. Yeah. Cause the book is, the book was all, um, made with smartphones with Blackberry smartphones. Right. And she wrote this essay called in defense of the poor image, which right. she basically like kind of breaks down what happens to digital images and, you know, and why they're important and what they're capable of doing mm-hmm. and all this stuff. So I found her after the book came out and that's when I brought it up to you. I was like, Oh, I wish I found oh, this. I right. wish I found her before. Yeah. What about like, do you remember certain details of what you got from what she was saying? Um, I loved this part where she was talking about how, how digital photos degrade every time you share them. Uh huh. So right. like if I send you a photo, it's degraded a little bit. And then when you send it again and like that whole thing. Yeah. Um, and it, it just tied into the book because the book was, the photos for the book came from sharing images. For your book. For my book. Yeah. It was just like the reason I made those photos is because uh, in like 06 or 07, like I got a smartphone and that's when the technology to make photography with your phones became available yeah. and easily disseminated and stuff. Yeah. And so it sort of ties into the title of the book too, mm-hmm. because the title of the book is The Beautiful Flower is the World. And that that phrase comes from a t-shirt that was made in China where someone probably just like, they just, the phrase was lost in translation. So there's something awkward about that. And about that phrase, the yeah. beautiful flower is the world. Like there's something off about it. And yeah. It kind of makes you think about it a little bit. And I mean, a lot of the photos are like that too, where you kind of look at it and you're like, why is this a photo? And you have to kind of like, definitely, you have to kind of look at it and, and be like, why is this either funny or interesting or whatever? And then, but the t-shirt is, it's interesting because the phrase had disintegrated. It like came, it started, you know, in English, went over there, yeah. the shirt was made and then it was sent over here and then I took a photo of it right. and then I sent it to people and now it's in a book. So like yeah. that, it, like the disintegration of that thing is, is just kind of interesting to yeah, me. Yeah. It sort of like ties into the photos. Yeah. The way ideas or images get like degraded in all different ways. Yeah. Not just in sharing them, but in like a person like looking at it and misinterpreting it or mm-hmm. something too. Pretty cool. Do you read a lot of like criticism or like cultural theory kind of stuff? Not a lot. I mean, one would be uh, this Mark Fisher book uh, called Ghosts of My Life. And um, he's just like a cultural theorist. And he he kind of like talks a lot about um, like how there's no future anymore because we keep just recycling everything. Like, oh, for example, no. like, like, like how we're just so obsessed with the past that we can't create a, the future culturally. You know, mm-hmm. we just keep like, like for example, like vaporwave, both the music and the the imagery from it is all just kind of like eighties stuff yeah. that people kind of like reinterpret. Yeah, yeah. and um, that stuff's really interesting. Yeah, wasn't that also a form of what we were just talking about? Though it's another form of degrading a source, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah, totally, and. 
Yeah. So that was like a, that was a, that was a cool kind of, and also kind of like depressing thing to read. Yeah. Like, um, that there's just no future. <laughs> like we can't, we just, we're stuck in the 20th century forever, kind of. Yeah. I can see that. I thought when you were saying that he wrote that there's no future, it was going to be about how we live in such a, moment of like exponential technological innovation growth that's part that of like it. the future we're just always in the future now because everything's expanding and changing every day yeah I does mean, that make sense yeah no totally yeah he's talking more about like how like for example like uh like in the 50s when that movie forbidden planet came out like yeah that was really you know pushing it but now people kind of just borrow from that idea and just and then or, or like like cyberpunk stuff like yeah. anything cyberpunk today it's sort of like lost its real meaning you know it's just sort of like people just want to take the aesthetic and apply it to their story or whatever yeah you know? and it does lose its impact or its meaning yeah. but a lot of cyberpunk stuff was basically classic detective noir with machines right totally but the but i think like the but the real like critical part of why cyberpunk came about as in literature is I think it's like, it was just like a different way to, to critique what was going on because like, in, like they're using the future yeah. to critique the present right. as opposed to using events in the past right. to critique now. Yeah. So yeah, uh, like, like for example, it's always like multinational corporations that control everything. Yeah. And, you know, and then this outsider hacker guy has to like, yes. you know, do, you know, has to do something. Yeah. Um, Hero protagonist. Yeah. Right. That's Snow Crash, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, no, is that Snow Crash? I don't know Snow Crash. Neil Stevenson. Hero protagonist is either Snow Crash or the first William Gibson book. Like Neuromancer and Blade Runner. Like, uh, man, the, discovering that stuff was just yeah. the best. Yeah. And now, I mean, sci fi fantasy, you're, you're what do you call it, a clothing line or what? Yeah. A brand? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. It's, I mean, yes, it is. Uh, but I just kind of treat it like an art project. Yeah. I try not to be too like crazy business person about it. It's, I just, yeah. I just try to, even though everyone's trying to make me do that, I'm just kind of like, well, I just, I just like having fun with this in it. Yeah. But that grew a lot, I, I would assume, out of the sort of cyberpunk aesthetics or like, earlier gen earlier decades conceptions of the future kind of stuff yeah totally um but i don't really try to make it like so literal you know yeah i'm not saying it's like kitschy or literal yeah. but but yeah definitely my like love of the genre drove me towards the name you mm -hmm. know because the name just is sounds so good and looks so good to me as, yeah. and yeah that actually was a result that that's so funny because when we were talking about depression because I was so depressed before I started that and the re and cat, my wife was so sick of me just like, you know, just being a piece of shit. <laughs> and she was, and she's so smart. She was just like, listen, she gave me this notebook and she's like, Hey, like just write down a bunch of names of things. It doesn't have to be anything. Just like, just, just put stuff, something down. Yeah. And that's how it started. I just wrote like 50 names and I didn't know what I was doing or what it was for, but I circled sci-fi fantasy and was like, Oh, I think this like, this could be something. And that's that's a really smart it. exercise. And that's that how it started. How, that's how it all started. Just from that. Yeah, it was because of her. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. Do you remember any other of any other the other names you wrote down? Um, I mean, the only other one I remember <laughs> was uh, Pearl. Pearl. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> I mean, you know, yeah. whatever. I don't remember the other ones. Uh, Have you ever been guilty of using books as like courtship objects, like giving a girl you like a book to try to like get her to like you more? That has definitely happened. 
And it probably hasn't worked because I can't remember any of them. <laughs> I can't remember any book that I ever that I ever gave a girl okay. that it actually made an impact. Or when I was a, a freshman in high school, I, I asked my mom what book I should get my girlfriend for her for Valentine's Day, and she said "The Prophet" by Khalil Gibran. <laughs> I don't even know what the fuck that was about, but I bought it and gave it to my girlfriend, and she was totally perplexed like, what is this <laughs> why didn't you just get me a cure record or something yeah 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 i was more like cds it's probably like a yeah, more yeah. easy to digest um so after like you know you did the alan watts thing when you were a teenager what, what were some other things you were reading um well i when i was in when i was a freshman in high school like i hated school and my some of my friends were going to this uh, this program, and it was called Project Advance, and it was basically this um, like our school district had this program outside of normal high school, and they had offices at this community college, the San Jose Community College, and basically what it was was they were still like San Jose Unified School Teachers, but they ran this like program outside of high school where we just like went to this community college and took classes from them, and it was basically for like you know like really smart goth kids uh-huh. they just like they can't deal with like the social yeah. shit at yeah. high school so it's kind of like a program for them you know what i mean like they're really really smart but socially they just they just can't function yeah and so a lot of my friends discovered it like my really really close friends and they went there and they're like you should do this and so i i somehow convinced my parents to let me do this and they let me do it. Well, why was it hard to convince them? Is it extra money or something? It was not extra money, but it was just this, it was just such a, because my parents were so, you know, they, they grew up in such a like regimented way academically Mm -hmm. that like this weird program called project advance, like at a community college, Uh like what are you talking about? But, um, they let me do it. And the teachers were so cool, especially the, my English teacher and, because in high school, we were reading things like, or in like middle school, high school, we were reading things like whatever, like Call of the Wild and yeah. Pride and Prejudice, right. like very, you know, whatever, yeah. you know, To Kill a Mockingbird. Right. But then we got to, we got here and they're sort of, their curriculum is like, you know, it was so much more free and um, sort of progressive. Like we were reading things like, like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, stuff mm-hmm. that like normal nice. high school students get to, didn't get to read. And yeah. we were watching movies like Europa, Europa. Wow. And like, just like looking back like oh that that's so cool that yeah. i got to do that and that my parents let me do it i don't know it was like pretty subversive stuff yeah it's cool and then and then also i got to graduate early because of that program that's amazing and and that was like kind of a that was definitely a goal because at that time i had already become a pro skater and i was like really really trying to like get away from any type of institution, yeah. you know, it was like, I wanted to go travel and, and, and like I had the money and the autonomy with pro skating and that program helped me graduate a year early and I was just gone. I was out. Nice. Yeah. Are there any books that you really want to like read, but you've just put off cause they seem like too intimidating or big or something like that? Um, you know, I've always wanted to read like like Asimov, like those foundation books. Yeah. Like, I've, but they just seem so daunting. You know, when like a book is like eight book series, yeah. you kind of get kind of like, oh, like, do I even want to start this? Yeah, it's a lot. Yeah. But I did read one Asimov book, The End of Eternity. That one was cool. What's that about? The End of Eternity is about, it's about uh, these group of humans and they're, 
they're called Eternals and they live in like the 27th century or something, but they live outside of time and their, their purpose in life is to basically manipulate history, like mm. travel throughout time to maximize human happiness and basically to create like a utopia. Wow. Okay. But obviously it backfires. And yeah. like one of them, the main character, he like falls in love with a woman. You're not supposed to do that. They're yeah. like monks. And he falls in love with a woman and, and then the Eternals find out and they're chasing him. And then he's like hiding her throughout time, like in the in the year one million and all this stuff. That's kind of cool. And then, uh, but in the end, like the moral is basically just like you, you can't create a utopian society because human beings won't progress if they're always happy. Sort of is like the message, you know, like if you just, if you just like, if you stop a war from happening or if you stop this from happening, then you know, everyone will just be complacent and they'll never yeah. become better. Yeah. You know, it, like pain and suffering is how you become better. Yay. <laughs> All <laughs> right. Like, no duh. Yeah. Thanks for listening. And thanks, Jerry, for coming over and talking. Right now, I'm like halfway through the three-body problem at Jerry's recommendation, and I'm into it. It's, um, it's very hard sci-fi. Like, there are footnotes about planetary physics. So you have to be kind of appreciative of stuff like that. Um, I've avoided detailed spoilers for it, uh, so it's pretty interesting trying to anticipate exactly where it's heading. Could go a couple different ways right now. I think it's the kind of book that if it doesn't really stick the landing, I'm going to be extra irritated. But if it does, I'm going to be extra psyched. I'm I'm not going to be lukewarm in my feelings about it either way. Um, Jerry is at Internet Famous. That's Internet Famous, all one word. And uh, Sci-Fi, his brand, is sci.fi.fantasy. Those are both on Instagram. Uh, if you haven't seen Jerry Skate, just go on YouTube and enter his name. You'll get lots of good stuff. And definitely check out the photo book we were talking about, uh, The Beautiful Flower is the World. Um, and here's the part where I say the stuff I always say at the end of the episode. You can get more Apology stuff, like the magazine and merch, at apologymagazine.com and or shopapology.com. The music is Bach by Cyrus Garamani. Uh, I had help with post-production and general podcast life advice from Justin Geller and Lars Kreslins. And um, it would really be helpful and pretty cool if you would like, subscribe, and review the podcast on whichever platform you're listening on. Sadly, that stuff really matters. I need you to like me. Okay, thanks a lot. We'll see you next time.